a tragedy occurred on March 17, 1911. A stagecoach driver named Bud Norton, who was carrying one passenger, a Mrs. Smith, was navigating a windy mountain road with sheer drops when the coach went over the precipice. In the ensuing crash, both Norton and Smith were killed. The road they were on was known as a dangerous one. Its steep inclines had a well-earned reputation as a horse killer. It hugged rugged, dangerous cliffs, and at times it was so narrow that it could only admit one direction of traffic. But believe it or not, this incident with Norton's coach did not dissuade anyone from using it. In fact, hundreds would use it the very next day, and one newspaper even reported, quote, with careful driving, there is no danger, end quote. Everyone must have driven incredibly carefully because we don't read of any further incidents taking place. But aside from the loss of life and the irony of the parade of people riding up this road 24 hours later, there is one more tragedy hidden in this story. And that is that Norton and Smith would go down in the history books as the last fatalities connected with the undertaking that this road supported. Because the pair were driving on the notorious Apache Trail, and the very next day after their crash, all of Phoenix would celebrate the dedication of the Roosevelt Dam. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 164, Roosevelt Dam. Welcome back, everyone. This episode marks the point where I start talking about what you probably have been waiting for since I started talking about water issues four episodes ago. That's right, it's finally time to talk about the construction of Roosevelt Dam. Well, Technically, we're going to be talking about the construction of the Tonto Dam, which is the original name for the project before someone somewhere was able to coax a certain ex-president to come and dedicate the thing. But we'll get into that later. In fact, we can't even start our story with the actual kickoff of construction of the dam itself. Because before we get into that, there is a small matter of how to get to the dam site itself. As we talked about two episodes back, the spot where Tonto Creek flowed into the Salt River was ideal for the project, a wing-shaped double valley with rock that was perfect for the construction of a dam. The only problem is that this site was 60 miles northeast of Mesa and 40 miles northwest of Globe, putting it about 65 miles from the nearest railroad station. State historian Thomas Sheridan describes the distance as, quote, leg-slashing-hoof-bruising miles across some of the roughest country in Arizona, end quote, with the site nestled between the Sierranchas, Mazatals, and Superstitions. Just 30 years before, General Crook had chased Yavapais and Tonto Apache across this very wilderness, and oh my goodness, do you remember Crook and all that? Feels like forever ago. So, the first order of business was to cut, carve, and blast roads to connect the site with the outside world. A total of 112 miles of access roads would be built. 
The first would be a road snicking its way up from Globe. The second would be the road coming from Mesa through Apache Junction, which is going to be our main focus. And the third would be a road that eventually led to a sawmill in the Sierra Anchas. But let's get back to the road from Mesa, which originally was called Roosevelt Road, but eventually took on the much more scenic name of the Apache Trail. Or as we call today State Route 88, but that doesn't sound as scenic. Funding for the 60-plus miles of road was approved in 1903, with construction starting soon after. Again, I turn to Sheridan's description when he says the Apache Trail, quote, was an engineer's nightmare and a worker's grave, end quote. By necessity, it had to follow the river, clinging to steep cliffsides. It would have to go up and down mountains like Fish Creek Hill, which had 10% grades, another source dubbed Fish Creek Hill, in particular a horse killer, and that was after the road was built. Those building this road had to use lifelines while hacking 25 to 75 feet into solid rock. And I have to mention that many of those workers were actually Apache from the relatively close San Carlos Reservation. These were working under the direction of Al Sieber, the legendary chief of scouts who had served Crook. I mentioned Sieber off and on during our run of episodes on the Apache Wars, and I admit that he's probably been short-shrifted in this podcast. Sieber is also worth mentioning because he was one of the first of the 17 recorded fatalities in connection with the dam's construction. He had survived the Civil War, and fellow scout Tom Horn says he had 28 wounds from his many scrapes during the Apache Wars, but he finally met his end on February 19, 1907, when he was crushed by a boulder that had come loose and was toppling down the hillside. By one account, he was crushed while trying to get his Apache workers out of danger from said falling boulder, which might be true, but it also sounds like it might be a romanticized version of the incident. Ironically enough, Sieber had also survived the actual construction of the Apache Trail, which had been finished in 1905 at the cost of around half a million dollars. As most of you know, the Apache Trail would continue to serve travelers and even those newfangled motorists for years to come. It would fall under the Arizona State Highway Department in 1927 as one of the first 10 designated state highways. Early state historian James H. McClintock makes sure to talk it up as part of a transcontinental automobile highway and a connecting link from Globe or the Tonto Basin into Phoenix. However, fun fact, by that time the road had already been modified. Starting in 1925, some of the original sections found themselves swallowed up by the new Canyon Lake, and so the Apache Trail was routed to go over Mormon Flats Dam. And just to cleanly wrap up this section of this long-winded explanation about a road, it was declared an Arizona Historic Road in 1987. So now that we have a road to get to the dam site, we have to have something there for the people who are actually going to build the darn thing. Well, for that, let me introduce you to the town of Roosevelt. McClintock says that soon after the National Reclamation Act of 1902 was passed, a camp of engineers was established at the junction of the Salt River and Tonto Creek. 
I must admit that I'm a little suspicious of that timing because, as we've seen, there was at least a year's worth of politicking between the Reclamation Act being passed and the Secretary of the Interior signing off on the Tonto Dam project. But he is the only source that wants to put anything close to a hard date on the community's founding, though historian Jay Wagner does agree that the original camp was made by engineers surveying the region. From the get-go, Roosevelt was an oddity for a western town. Probably the most unusual thing about it is that everyone who moved there had a very clear understanding that they weren't going to be there for long. After all, the spot where they were settled was going to flood the moment the new dam went into operation. So, though businesses and individuals moved there during construction, the government continued to hold title to all the land. Wagner also says that the community was split into two sections. Everything close to the dam itself was for government use to actually build the project, while the rest was divided into regular town lots. But the bit I really love is that there were certain rules that were laid down for anyone looking to temporarily settle down in Roosevelt. The first was that any lots had to be immediately occupied either by a business or a residence. Secondly, no saloons, gambling houses, houses of ill repute, or other questionable businesses could be built along the main street. State historian Marshall Trimble goes so far as to say that these staples of the typical frontier boomtown were not allowed. And either way, Wagner says that drunkenness was virtually unknown in Roosevelt. And I have to tell you, I'm just a little flabbergasted that with all the rough work happening on the dam, they managed to rein in the workforce's ability to blow off money and steam at these types of establishments. But rein it in they did, and soon Roosevelt took on the character of a town that had been around for decades. It had a school and a building for either religious services or public meetings, a water supply, a built-out sewage system, a stage line, and daily mail service out of Globe. One of my sources even claims that it had its own post office. It also had telephone service with Globe 43 miles away and Phoenix 75 miles away. And yes, we've actually hit the point where they have telephones now. So we are a long way away from waiting months for the King of Spain to reply to that one question about administration the Viceroy had asked him. And when I mention businesses coming in, I do mean all the businesses that would make any community work. Bakers, pharmacists, or the cooler sounding druggists, livery owners, barbers, restaurants, a theater, etc., the barber actually took over a hot spring that was nearby, and there was often a long line of people holding towels and soap to be able to take advantage of the opportunity for a hot bath. I think Wagner mentions my favorite part of this whole thing when he talks about how the town decided to keep bloodshed to a minimum. As you can imagine, men greatly outnumbered women, something like three to one, like you would see in most boom towns. Community dances had always been a big thing in the entertainment-starved West, but they also were a major source of violence as all the men vied for a moment or two on the floor with the few women around. To get around this problem, the community issued each man who came to the dance a tag with a number. 
They then announced that only tag numbers X through Y could be on the floor for the first dance, then Y through Z for the second dance, and so on and so forth. And that seemed to keep the peace long enough for the men to actually finish their work and flood their temporary little town. Okay, so we have a road to get there, and we have a place for the workers to stay. I think that means it's time to actually start building this dam. The newly completed Apache Trail would see 20 mule teams dragging in heavy equipment, along with some 1.5 million pounds of freight. However, as much as possible, building material was made on scene. The federal government had originally gone with private contractors to produce all the lumber for the project, but these all failed to meet their quotas. So the government built a 30-mile road into the Sierra Anchas to take over a private lumber mill and went from producing under 120,000 board feet per month to 214,000 board feet per month. In the end, this mill would produce more than 3 million board feet for the entire dam. Something similar happened with cement. The government had collected quotes from contractors, but the lowest bid, from what is described as a cement trust, came out to be $4.89 a barrel, or roughly $9 a barrel when transportation costs were factored in. McClintock says the Reclamation Service considered that cost something akin to price gouging, so they decided, again, that they would do it themselves, and started mixing their own cement on scene. Searching out limestone and clay from along the banks of the Salt River, they were able to cheaply turn out quality cement for a little over $3 a barrel. Why we can applaud their frugality and cost savings now, at the time the Cement Trust cried foul over this move, and McClintock says the decision was derided as rank socialism and the, quote, denial of the vested rights of capital, end quote. For construction, the Reclamation Service awarded the contract to John M. O'Rourke and Company of Galveston, Texas, on April 8, 1905. The company went to work immediately with preparation. Aside from what we just talked about, they had to build a nearly 20-mile canal to divert some water further upstream and run it through the dam site to produce power for the equipment. Then came the building of two temporary dams above and below the site, and a 500-foot tunnel dug through solid rock to divert the river. And that last part was made more difficult by the presence of hot springs, which produced steam that got up to 130 degrees. But nature, oh mother nature, can be a fickle mistress. This whole project had started off because the Salt River would dry up and leave farmers with very little water for their crops, or even worse, it would flood and wipe out everything downstream. Now that the dam was being built to ameliorate those issues, the Salt decided that it was going to do the latter of those two things. It turns out that 1905 was one of the wettest years anyone could remember, and work was happening while the river was in a fast, angry mood. Then in November, a warm rain melted a bunch of snow upstream, which caused the salt to flood even worse, rising some 30 feet at the dam site in a matter of 15 hours. 
the surging river took out pilings and swept away the diversion dams and flumes that were in construction. This flooding would actually last all winter, and it wouldn't be until March 1906 that work could actually start again. Crews again worked on the diversion dams and the tunnel, and the first stone of the actual dam itself was put into place on September 20th, 1906. But in December, another flood came sweeping down, and work again had to stop until the spring of 1907. The river was diverted yet again in May 1907, but then that summer, even more flooding occurred, resulting in only half the expected work being finished by that November. Then, in the spring of 1908, one more flood came roaring down the salt, but by that time, the south end of the dam had risen to a sufficient point that it could redirect water over the lower north end. All this flooding did more than just stop work. It destroyed equipment, washed away the supporting infrastructure, filled up excavation sites with mud and silt, and scoured the bottom of the dam itself. Still, the salt had thrown everything it had at the project, and miraculously, it still stood firm. Nothing was going to stop the age of the dams now. And it should be noted what hard work this was. Engineers had determined early on that too many explosions would weaken the rocks to an unsuitable degree, so men had to dig the old-fashioned way, with picks, shovels, and sledgehammers. Stonecutters quarried the building blocks from local sandstone cliffs, while Italian stonemasons had been imported to help construct the dam itself. Men used wooden derricks, think of the lattice works you see around old-time oil rigs, to lift these blocks, which weighed up to 10 tons and could be near 50 cubic feet in size, into place. Cement would then be applied between the stones, cement that had to be kept wet for six whole days to keep it from cracking. In total, some 343,000 cubic yards of stone and 338,000 barrels of cement went into what, at the time, was the world's largest masonry dam. Finally, the last stone would be put into place on February 5, 1911. The finished dam rose up 284 feet from the bed of the river, spanned more than 1,000 feet in a concave curve, and was 184 feet thick at the bottom and 16 feet thick at the top. Oh, it was also four years behind schedule, thank you Angry Salt River, and with a price tag of around $10 million, was more than triple the original estimated budget. Still, the Reclamation Service hailed the dam as a, quote, monumental triumph of the skill and genius of its scientist creators, end quote. And behind it, the Salt River and Tonto Creek were quickly filling up what would be a more than 16,000-acre lake, which actually made it the largest artificial lake in the world at the time. The only thing left to do was to dedicate the thing, which was done a month later on March 18, 1911. As everyone is probably well aware, the dam was dedicated by former President Theodore Roosevelt himself, though I'm not entirely sure how he came to be the one to have this honor. Certainly, he had enough friends who were very friendly toward the project, if not outright pushing for it, 
but it could be also the hyper-proud citizens of the Valley sent a request, in very nice calligraphy no doubt, to the champion of conservation to come out for the occasion. It really was a grand affair too. T.R. arrived in Phoenix a little after 9 in the morning, soon appearing at the door of his private train car to a sea of people. Of course, there were flags, the bunting, the singing, the speeches, the parade of school children, and the National Guard just to mark the occasion. The president then led a caravan of 23 automobiles, quite the sight in 1911, carrying various national and local dignitaries onto the very sketchy Apache Trail. They were followed by some 200 other cars from either Globe or the Salt River Valley who wanted to be on hand for the event, though there were also a good deal of people who came in buggies and just on horseback. One source says that Roosevelt and those with him were given boxed lunches that were quickly consumed during a 20-minute stop at Mormon Flats just so they could keep the whole procession rolling and make it to the dam site on time. When the former president finally reached the dam, either dynamite or an 11-gun salute was set off so the sound would echo through the canyon and greet him. T.R. then took his place on the dais next to the president of the Salt River Valley Water Users Association, the governor, and various other officials, including Benjamin Fowler, who had a hand not only getting this dam on the government's radar, but also organizing the farmers to help pay for it. I won't bore you with all of Roosevelt's speech, but the piece that most people pick out is when the former president said that he had pride in the, quote, two great achievements of his administration. And here he was talking about this very dam, indirectly at least, as he was referring to the Reclamation Act he had signed, which had led to its construction. In case you are wondering, the other great achievement was another public works project he had been very keen on, a canal, in fact, tucked away in the tiny Latin American country of Panama. After concluding that Phoenix would become one of the great agricultural areas of the world, Roosevelt pressed a button to open the large sluice gates that had held the river back. Later that evening, once dusk had settled in, Roosevelt's daughter Edith had the honor of throwing the switch that turned on the dam's electric lights. At the time of Roosevelt's speech, the lake was only 100 feet deep, so enough water to have buried the former site of the workmen's community of Roosevelt, and enough to put the entire state of Delaware under one foot of water. Still, it wouldn't be until April 1915, so four years later, that the reservoir reached its intended depth of 225 feet. McClintock, just because he is the sort of guy to record these things, says that some of the first water through the new dam spillway was actually preserved and used just a few months later in June to christen the new battleship Arizona. And since I'm here talking minutiae, I should just add that a fascinating little tidbit is that the dam's name started as Tonto Dam, but was then changed to Roosevelt Dam to honor the man who dedicated it. I've already told you that, but 48 years later, none other than Barry Goldwater would actually lead a campaign to change the name from Roosevelt Dam to Theodore Roosevelt Dam. It may seem like a small thing, but Goldwater, a staunch Republican, wanted to make sure that the right Roosevelt, that is, the Republican Teddy, not the Democratic Franklin Delano, got the credit. Once again, 
something to file under things we choose to care about. I should also remind you that the total cost of the dam came out to be more than $10 million. And if you remember from our previous episodes, that's how much the government put up front for the construction from the account set up using public land trust dollars, with the expectation that it would be paid back. It would take the Salt River Valley Water Users Association until 1955 to pay off the cost of the dam. However, part of that is because the association asked for an extension of the loan, something that Congress granted them in 1914. Another part is that the association thought the Reclamation Service, which it considered too autocratic anyway, had spent too much money and it called for an investigation. The assessment of the agency revealed issues and inequalities with both the project and the Reclamation Service in general, but that didn't stop people from joining the Salt River Valley Water Users Association or enjoying the fruits of Roosevelt Dam. In fact, the association would take over operating the dam in 1917 after the Secretary of the Interior offered it. In its nearly 113 years of operation, Theodore Roosevelt Dam has also received several updates. According to the Bureau of Reclamation, between 1989 and 1996, the structure was changed from a cyclopean rubble masonry thick arc structure to a more modern concrete gravity arch dam. And this was a very challenging aspect to this update because the engineers basically had to design a concrete overlay that would work with the older masonry construction underneath. But the biggest upside to this whole project was that it increased the height of the dam by 77 feet, which in turn meant a water storage capacity increase of about 20%. From what I can find, Theodore Roosevelt Lake is closer to 21,500 acres today. This increase was actually a safety measure to add more flood control space to ensure that the dam wouldn't fail and it wouldn't endanger the newer dams further downstream. Also, the new concrete overlay was made to assure that the dam wouldn't fall if there was a strong earthquake in the vicinity. Which, if you look back to episode 134, is not entirely outside the realm of possibility. Additionally, it received new spillways, outlet works, and powerhouse improvements. Oh, also, new recreation sites were constructed because this is Roosevelt Lake we are talking about and people really like going up there. While doing research for this episode, I also came across a curious article in Arizona Highways Magazine, which you all should subscribe to, by the way, that brought up another aspect of this concrete facelift. You see, Roosevelt Dam was listed as a National Historic Landmark by the National Park Service in 1963. But following the update, that designation was revoked in 1999. This was nothing personal toward the dam, but the fact of the matter is the work made it so that the features that had led to the original historic designation had been lost or destroyed, and so the dam was delisted. Roosevelt Dam is the only site in Arizona, and one of only 35 landmarks nationwide, to have its historic status withdrawn by the Park Service. It's nothing really to hang your hat on, but it's a fun tidbit nonetheless. Now, I'm as surprised as anyone that it only took one episode to get through the construction of Roosevelt Dam, 
despite constantly leafing through four books and two online historical articles for the past week. But get through it in one week we did, so it's time to turn our attention elsewhere. It's actually kind of fitting because A, Roosevelt Dam's dedication happened just under a year before Arizona became a state, and B, if you look at the calendar, we are moving into February, which means we are almost at Arizona's 112th birthday. And since the fates are clearly aligning things so nicely for us, it's time that we finally talk about one of those things that was in my original sketch for this series and has been looming over me for ages now. So join me next week as we start talking about the final push for statehood, which saw Arizona adopt a radically liberal constitution and finally become the 48th state in the Union. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.